Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Greetings, listeners. Let's get to an incredibly interesting and random assortment of questions on all matters of healthy living. Just a wild ride. You'll see what I mean when I start reading uh, the various topics that come through. Some success stories, some inspirational stuff. You'll love it. Uh, Let's start with Philip. Hey, man, love your podcast. Thank you. I've been keto for 15 months and lost 40 pounds. Never felt better. I picked up biking in a competitive way, and I'm getting ready for a 40K time trial event in September. Uh, So that's a 24.8-mile race against the clock, a very tough competitive event. He says he thinks he should be able to complete it in an hour, which is extremely fast. That's pumping a bicycle 24.8 miles in a single hour. Uh, And his message, his question is, I usually fast until 1 p.m., but since my race is at 9 a.m., should I eat before? And if so, what should I eat? Uh, Should I eat the day of event or the day before? Uh, actually, there was a, a typo. Maybe he dictated it to Siri, and he says, uh, "I usually fast until one p.m., but my rave is at nine a.m." <laughs> so he's training for a rave. I'm going to say it was a race, right, Philip? Forty k, a forty k rave. Oh, it's going to be groovy, man. So that's a really interesting question that applies to a lot of people who are. Uh, doing the keto thing and wanting to balance it with competitive aspirations. We've talked to the endurance community a lot about uh, come race day when you need to refuel for uh, competitions going for longer than 90 minutes or two hours. Of course, you can consume whatever you need to consume to get you to the finish line. Uh, Look at Zach Bitter's blog when he broke the American record for the 100-mile run on the track. Uh, completing 100 miles, that's 400 laps if you're counting, which I'm sure some people had to all day long, in 11 hours and 46 minutes. Absolutely unbelievable. It equates to like a seven-something mile all day long on the track. I'm absolutely amazed. And he went to the trouble to uh, chronicle everything he consumed during the event on his blog. And he had an assortment of random stuff. I remember breezing through it and looking at slugging down a Mountain Dew here and uh, some cookies there. Uh, of course, the the proper energy fuels, the high-tech stuff that's in a wrapper. Uh, but the central point was uh, this very low-carb athlete. He's now uh, deep into the carnivore scene and uh, been experimenting for many years with elite-level ultra-marathon performance running and the very low-carb ketogenic and now carnivore diet. Uh, but on race day, And when he's in his hardest training patterns, that's when he says he allows a little more leeway in the carb intake to fuel these difficult workouts. And actually, when he's doing the base building phases, when he's uh, toning down his heart rate and really working on burning fat and getting strong for the competitive season, that's when he's doing uh, some strict keto and really watching that carb intake uh, to get the benefits of anti-inflammatory and faster recovery. So pretty interesting strategy. So answering Philip's question, uh, 
you know, it's an hour race. So if you're fat adapted, as you describe, you should be able to operate just fine in a morning time trial without having to go and look for some kind of meal that actually might compromise your performance if it's difficult to uh, digest and assimilate uh, an hour before the race or two hours before the race or whatever. Uh, but it certainly wouldn't hurt to make sure that you're well fueled uh, the day before. And I often used to tell athletes, uh, triathletes where they had the running event, biking is a little different because you can uh, digest and assimilate food much easier when you're sitting on a seat. You don't have that huge gastric distress uh, dealing with uh, impact running and trying to process calories from the night before or from on board during the event. So a little bit more leeway for the cyclists. You can see the Tour de France guys taking their cream puffs in in the middle of the race and whatever it takes to uh, keep the motor running. So you probably could have some onboard calories on your bicycle if you start to feel the telltale signs of uh, low blood glucose and swig uh, some uh, fuel in a liquid form would be best. Of course, the gels are pretty close to a liquid form. And if you need to pop one of those at the 40-minute mark, a lot of athletes are uh, want for doing that. Uh, but really not the biggest concern when you're only going 40K. Just go really fast so you don't run out of fuel. <laughs> Next letter from a huge fan. Been listening to all your podcasts, Brad, for three years now. Thank you so much. And we didn't write your name down. Lamo, sorry. But she's a 32-year-old female. Been running the last 10 years in a typical chronic pattern that you often mention with some very impressive times, 346 marathon, 139 for the half, 46 for the 10K. Now I got two little kids, three years old and six months old, ran through pregnancy, no problems, uh, and postpartum. Uh, I lift weights and cross train weekly now. I run three to four miles a day, five days a week in very hot environment. I will eat six fried eggs and butter for breakfast around eight or nine. But like clockwork, I'm ravenous at 12 noon. I would love to be able to fast and eat in a compressed time window. I love the idea of all these topics, but for three years, I've tried on and off to tweak my macros, and I still never seem to last too long in between meals. I don't measure my ketones. I don't know if I'm in ketosis. I pretty much eat 20 to 40 grams of carbs per day at most. So I'm not a sugar burner, but try as I might, I cannot last a longer time. I've been like this my whole life, much worse, obviously, when I ate a sad diet. But I thought I'd get over this eventually. Uh, just wondering if you're interested. I'm in Houston, Texas. I'm 5'8", 135. Well, usually I'm 128 to 130, but I'm nursing now. <laughs> okay, you're allowed. Hey, hey, good stuff. Um, and finally, uh, I know you have some interviews uh, with good people, uh, but I would love to hear more specific discussion about women's issues, especially for nursing moms who are very active trying to maintain a very low-carb diet. I eat cleanly with the eggs, meat, butter, nuts, avocado, green veggies, dark chocolate, uh, but it's still a concern that she's not able to go that long between meals. Okay, a few things come to mind. First of them is that when you're pregnant or nursing mother, you are in a very distinct growth phase of your life, such as a toddler or an adolescent until they reach uh, full height. And then we transition into the whatever you want to call it, maintenance phase. And then we hopefully will delay the aging phase where we start to uh, uh, lose uh, peak performance capability, lose muscle mass, uh, a lot of times adding body fat, slowing down. So we want to stave that off by uh, eating cleanly, moving a lot, exercising, living a good life. Compressed morbidity is the term 
that's a, a scientific term about uh, anti-aging strategy. And what it means is by staying strong and healthy and energetic and keeping active, you delay the inevitable. And the inevitable would be that you uh, get sick, weak, and die at some point in your life. So that would be the objective here is to compress your morbidity time into that uh, time window, let's say when you turn 95 or what have you, uh, you know you don't have that many years left. And so when things happen, they happen quickly and your demise happens quickly, as opposed to uh, drawn out morbidity, right? When you start getting uh, risk factors going when you're 60 and you become a ticking time bomb and they don't like your blood values and you start to have a bunch of medications going down the pipe, then you are doomed to a existence of uh, struggling and suffering as you decline, decline, and it takes a long period of time. Same with the, uh, the disastrous case of cognitive decline, where you're still a relatively young body, where you have a lot of time left, but you start losing your mind at a young age, so then you're going to have uh, these difficulties and reduced quality of life for a decade or two decades because you had the early onset uh, dementia case. So we want to do the best we can with our lifestyle practices to delay everything. Oh, my dad, what a great example. He went strong, strong for 95 years. He was in great form, no health complaints, no aches and pains, uh, playing championship level golf deep into his 90s. Uh, We bragged on his website that he was uh, arguably uh, the top golfer in the world over the age of 90 for several years. And then about the age of 95, he started to take uh, some downturns and got tired and uh, weaker and weaker. And he passed at the age of 97 very gracefully early this year. What a fantastic run. And then sort of a uh, abrupt drop-off where the last two years of his life were uh, noticeably different than what he was doing for all those nine decades of peak performance. So we can all wish for the same and try our hardest to create that wonderful picture of a uh, compressed time period for your morbidity risk factors. Get it? All right. So uh, back to the letter. Uh, You're in a growth phase of life. So this is when you probably don't want to concern yourself too much with limiting your carb intake or uh, dialing in your macros or any of those things that most people are doing in the name of reducing excess body fat, reducing disease risk factors. So when you're pregnant and nursing, you want uh, accelerated cell division from being uh, plenty well-fueled with good nutritional value. Obviously, no call to ever throw junk food down your face just because you need calories, Uh, but you've allowed for a small amount of weight gain. I wouldn't even worry about that if you wanted to gain five more pounds, extremely fit, being 5'8 and 128 in top shape or 135 while nursing, and just enjoy these years where you're feeding others and want to maximize your nutrition and err on the uh, the overload side, uh, that would be uh, adding excess body fat, right? That's when you know you're uh, consuming sufficient calories. And definitely don't uh, worry about the time frame uh, when you become ravenous after you eat a decent breakfast at eight or nine, especially when you're throwing on the other variable of a very ambitious training program. So we're in a growth phase of life and you're running these crazy events like a 346 marathon and a 139 half. Maybe you're not doing that exactly right now while you're nursing, but you got a lot going on. So you need good nutritious food. Everyone, please listen to uh, my fantastic shows with Dr. Tommy Wood, 
Uh, I've had him on the Primal Blueprint podcast. I had two in succession on the Get Over Yourself podcast and a summary uh, recording where you can get all the hot bullet points. But Tommy expressed this so beautifully when he said, you know, there's this trade-off between uh, caloric efficiency where you can fast a lot and you can get by on fewer calories. And then if you have peak performance goals, you want to maximize your nutritional intake and eat more of the good foods. Uh, He made some memorable quips during the show where he said, you know, these people, they tell me they have half an avocado for breakfast. He's like, forget that. Have two avocados and three eggs. What do you mean three eggs? Have six eggs. That kind of mentality for a healthy, active person who is not in the uh, uh, high BMI category, uh, high blood risk factors from uh, sedentary lifestyle ways and uh, excess calorie diet. So we want to find that balance. And in the growth phase, everything is different. All bets are off. It's like talking to a teenager who's trying to recover from three-hour basketball practice every day, namely my son. I remember those years in high school, and he was eating everything in sight from the moment he woke up until the moment he went to bed to try to gain muscle mass while performing in grueling athletic activities and while growing to his full height. So it's like down the pipe, and we're not worrying about uh, whether your carb grams go over some window. So we'll talk again, dear female from Houston, Texas, doing a great job and big podcast fan. Send me an email. Tell me your name. I'm so sorry. But what a great letter and opening up some really important questions for, for all listeners, really. Uh, I mean, not very often that we're in a growth phase and not many listeners are in the growth phase, but it's nice to know and reflect upon. And in fact, if you're training for these grueling events, uh, the the ultra distance competitions, um, you're going to have an increased nutritional need right? As opposed to the person who's sitting in the next cube, uh, watching a lot of uh, video and riding a lot of subway and not really moving much in daily life, their nutritional needs are diminished as well as their caloric needs. But we also have to remember that when we're athletes, uh, because a lot of times athletes give themselves a free pass to go and consume a lot of junk food, a lot of extra calories because they burn them off. But we want to think of this a little differently, whereby, just like Tommy Wood said, you might be best served by consuming six eggs and two avocados for breakfast rather than three eggs and a half an avocado. And guess what? If you eat in that manner, maybe you'll be less inclined to be hitting the Ben and Jerry's that night because of your ambitious training program. So, you know, up the ante on the delicious, nutritious foods that fuel your athletic performance and recovery. Thank you, Oh, here's a little note from myself interspersed within the real questions. And, oh, I was remembering this uh, quip that Ben Greenfield made on one of his shows uh, referencing the science that reveals that when you consume uh, an industrial seed oil and the oxidative stress that it inflicts upon your body as soon as you ingest it, it is believed that the agents stay in your body. They integrate into your fat cells for at least 18 days. I've also heard uh, 72 days from other sources. So you consume this toxic crap, and it's very difficult to burn, unlike the fatty acids that you will consume in your olive oil, coconut oil, macadamia nuts, uh, where you can easily mobilize those into energy, maybe right away, maybe later. So you know my uh, distaste for the term cheat day. Uh, I talk about that all the time, that... Uh, suggests a flawed mentality that you have to cheat away from something. In other words, you don't uh, appreciate your uh, normal routine diet 
uh, and it's difficult to sustain, and so you need a cheat day. Uh, a celebration day would be a much better term, right? Uh, but anyway, I wrote, that's not a cheat day when you have vegetable oil, when you binge on french fries. That's a cheat month. So when we do have our celebratory departures from your typical uh, structured diet, whether it's keto or whatever you're following, uh, primal paleo pattern, and you go and have a cheesecake at the birthday party celebration, call it a celebration day, and stay away from the refined vegetable oils. Make really awesome choices, especially when you're choosing uh, these indulgences and diversions. I mean, if you're going over to grandma's house and you walk in and you smell the smell of fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies and she offers you one, yeah, wow, delicious, warm, fantastic, wouldn't experience the smells, the tastes, the... Uh, the, the, the cultural significance of connecting with the older generation and then preparing something out of love from scratch with the best ingredients, big difference from slamming a bag of Chips Ahoy on a road trip just because you pulled into a gas station and you felt hungry and said, what the heck? So we want to keep those chemicals out of our body, and that goes hand in hand with enjoying life and celebrating life and making really great special choices when it's time to indulge. My man, Rudy Dressendorfer, the all-wise Rudy Dressendorfer, who sends me wonderful commentary and feedback on the shows, helping me be the best I can be, and keeping me in check with his exercise physiology knowledge in case something comes out that didn't sound right or that I need to correct at a future show. Uh, So he was saying uh, this nonsense with the overindulgence on apps and biofeedback and technology for old school guys like us uh, is getting kind of ridiculous. I did a whole blip show on this topic. Uh, But he says the exercise mantra years ago before the uh, emergence of the apps was listen to your body. No further instruction was needed. Unfortunately, biofeedback technology today has changed that mantra to listen to your app. (laughs) The modern mantra does not make exercise as joyful as nature intended because it constrains the mind. Trip out on that. Wonderful insight. Thank you, Dr. Rudy, uh, furthering this uh, woo-woo insight into woo-woo land. Uh, I can recall growth experiences in my life as an athlete where I sort of took off the constraints of my normal uh, training schedule where I would try to design everything and have a long bike ride as a triathlete that meant 100 mile and a long run meant you know, 15, 17 to 20 miles and a long swim meant uh, four or 5,000 meters and so a short swim meant 1,500 to 2,000 meters, a short bike ride meant 20 miles, right? And we ha- start to make these artificial constructs in our mind. And I had some tremendous growth experiences. I wrote about these uh, in old days in Triathlete Magazine and got a lot of uh, positive feedback from these articles where I went out there with uh, my old-time friend Johnny G, one of the great fitness leaders of all time, the inventor of indoor cycling, creator of the spinning program. Thanks to him, we have spin class around the world. He made it up in his garage, and I attended some of the very first spinning sessions uh, ever on the planet in 1987 with Ali Sheedy, old-time Hollywood actress, was in there, and we'd go over to his garage, and he'd turn the music up really loud. Sometimes he'd turn the lights off, and he'd lead you through a bicycle ride. What a great idea. And of course, it exploded into a fitness sensation that still remains today with Peloton and everything else and all the uh, group exercise bicycle classes and gyms throughout the globe. Anyway, Johnny in those days was a race across America ultra marathon.
marathon endurance cyclist. If you haven't heard of the RAM, R-A-A-M, the Race Across America, uh, this still exists today in different formats, a little more sensible and sane. But in the old days, it was a solo, nonstop bicycle race across the United States of America from coast to coast for a single individual rider uh, starting line at the ocean in Santa Monica or Huntington Beach, Southern California, and they would shoot the gun off and these guys would ride. And the first person to New York City or Washington, D.C. or Atlanta, the various finish lines they set up uh, would be the winner. Absolutely insane and probably the most extreme and most challenging endurance event maybe ever created on the planet, although some of those uh, Raid Galois and those long-distance adventure races are in the running as well. But when you're talking about a nonstop coast-to-coast race, that meant it was really an exercise in sleep deprivation because your time off the bike, even for brief periods, would set you so far behind someone who was just merely on their bike pedaling. So the champions of old times, like Michael Shermer, who's now a prominent uh, thought leader in modern culture, uh, leader of the skeptic movement, International Skeptic Society, uh, author, frequent podcast guest. You can hear him on Joe Rogan and other shows. He was one of the lead old-time writers back then. Uh, Some of the great old names like uh, Michael Seacrest, Paul Solon, these guys that would get on their bikes and ride across America with very little break, uh, setting a winning or a record time of eight days and change. And the way they would do this, Pete Penn Sears was another legend who was the first guy to uh, ride with his elbows on the, uh, the, the top handlebar uh, with little elbow rests. So he was the precursor to the invention of the aerodynamic handlebar that revolutionized the sport of triathlon and cycling time trials. This was in the mid-80s. Pete Penn Sears, yeah. He used to commute to work uh, from Fallbrook, California over to, uh, I believe, San Onofre. And so it was about a 40-mile bike ride day and morning and night year round, just putting in 80 miles uh, as a work commuter, good base training for race across America and going nonstop for eight days. But the training regimens that these guys had to uh, undergo to prepare to ride the bicycle nonstop and the winners would go for, oh mercy, uh, you know, 22 hours a day on the bike with two hours off the bike, maybe an hour and a half, quote unquote, sleep, and then a half an hour here and there for changing clothes and uh, repairs or whatever. And so it was absolutely amazing level of endurance performance. And so Johnny would do these um, uh, very long distance training rides and invite me along sometime. Uh, On occasion, he would ride his bicycle all night and then meet me in the morning at my house, and I'd pick it up, and we'd go for 100, 150 uh, all-day bicycle ride. And that was a wonderful experience because I realized that not one peep of complaint was going to come out of my mouth no matter what, (laughs) knowing that this poor guy had been riding his bicycle all night while I was sleeping, getting ready for our grueling ride the next day. Uh, But the mind frame that changed for me was when Johnny would take me on these uh, extreme rides. One time he took me on a 200-mile bike ride. We rode from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara, had lunch, and then rode back home to Los Angeles. And to me, prior to that ride, 100 miles was my benchmark for a long, grueling, exhausting ride that uh, earned you a lot of couch time and a lot of frozen yogurt time afterward, right? So if I'm thinking that 100 miles is my benchmark for a long ride, I'm going to start getting tired mentally around the 80-mile mark. Oh my gosh, we're almost home. Come on, we can do it. High five. Let's keep going. Let's stop and get another hostess pie so we can make it. And your mentality 
your disposition toward uh, what you're doing uh, makes a huge impact on how your body feels and what you can do uh, with your uh, peak performance capabilities. And I realized when we sat down for lunch in Santa Barbara and looking at my little bicycle computer, I was, you know, we were passing the time chatting. I didn't really realize what was going on at first. Uh, and realizing I had <laughs> another hundred miles just to get home, I kind of freaked out a little bit at our uh, lunchtime sit down in Santa Barbara. But then what are you going to do? You got to get home. So you keep pedaling and pedaling and pedaling. And oh my gosh, we were so psyched up the last hour. We were hammering, uh, going at a really high rate of speed, uh, trade the wind and, you know, acting like bicycle racers after such an awesome day and a true breakthrough, not just physically to be able to uh, complete a 200-mile bike ride and adjust to that and come back stronger as a physical person, but also in my mind, forevermore, my comfort zone had been expanded, my frontier, to now realize that 200 miles represented a long ride. And yes, indeed, it was a long ride. I was pretty trashed after. I didn't drink enough water. I remember taking a nap and waking up so dehydrated. Like, I was too tired to drink water before my nap, and I woke up and I was just burning up, and I drank like five quarts of water in succession. So, uh, definitely a peak performance effort. But in my mind, forevermore, 100 miles no longer represented this ultimate accomplishment of the, the great longest ride that you can pat yourself on the back on for weeks on end. And then uh, when you talk about a 40K ride, which was my competitive distance in the triathlon circuit, that's only 24.8 miles. So when you're out there putting in 200-mile bike rides, we did a few more. I did others with other people, and it became a fun thing to go and expand your outer limit of how far you could ride uh, from sunup to sunset. We weren't really big on going at night like Johnny because he needed a crew and lights and the whole thing, but that's putting in a lot of time on the seat. And so when I have that in my... Uh, in my quiver, in my database, in my savings bank, and I get to the starting line of a triathlon race, and I'm only going for 24.8 miles, I'm no longer afraid. I'm no longer holding anything back because we're going all of 25 miles. I'm just hammering full speed the entire duration of the ride. And then knowing, of course, we have to get off and run six miles, but psychologically, I have so much more confidence in my ability to endure the competitive race distances that I don't have to hold anything back and have that tiny bit of fear that, re that resides way in the back of your mind, wondering if you're going too fast on the bike and maybe you should slow down because you have a six-mile run coming up. I'm telling you, it was a huge breakthrough. I Hopefully, I uh, communicated that appropriately, but that's the argument, back to Rudy's comment, that you need to uh, throw down some barriers sometimes uh, on, on both ends, right? So don't force yourself to get to the gym when you're tired just because you need to put in at least 30 minutes a day or you don't feel like you feel like you're going to get out of shape. That's bullshit too. If you need to rest three days, rest three days. Go for it. Blow open those constraints that you put uh, psychologically and physically on your mind and body. And so, you know, more rest when it's warranted. And then on the flip side, open up the throttle, man. Go faster. Go further. Don't be scared see what's out there if you crash and burn and you need to get a ride home at least we have Lyft and Uber now we didn't have that in the old days yeah no excuses try something crazy live a radical life like Dr. Paul Saladino says okay <sighs> that was a one paragraph comment and look how long I went off on that but that's some fun stuff right there and I think really really important a great memory for expanding my horizons as an athlete and as a person, right? So Kenneth writes in that he has a schizoaffective disorder. Uh, 
and have found that I've been able to drastically reduce my meds through keto and primal lifestyle. One person I really like is Dr. Georgia Ede, E-D-E. Love to have to have you bring her on the podcast. Uh, a lot of focus is on blood markers, body composition, and overall health in our game here that he's talking about. But I rarely hear podcasts talking about mental illness. With the rise in mental illness and disorders, including autism in modern society, it would be great to get this message out that you don't just have to rely on medicine. Wow, thanks for such a powerful letter. Thank you. It's not over, but I'm uh, jumping in here because uh, the research on the ketogenic diet is really amazing. Dr. Dom D'Agostino has been talking about this for a long time, where when you give that brain a superior fuel source to glucose and you start to burn energy in a more clean manner with less oxidative stress and more oxygen and blood circulation in the brain, getting those brain neurons functioning better, it can have a marked impact on assorted conditions of mental illness and cognitive decline. Back to Kenneth's letter. The medicine they put us on affects our entire well-being from raising insulin to hormone disturbances to man boobs and lactation in women. That can't be a good thing unless you're having a baby, right? The medicine also has the warning that it might induce suicidal thoughts. Did you know that? Antidepressant medication, one of the side effects? Oh, mercy. Anyway, back to Kenneth. I just wanted to say thank you for all that you do in the primal keto space. I'm an avid listener, and like I also mentioned, I've dramatically improved my health overall by following your advice. I follow keto. I follow primal endurance protocol, even though I'm still in base building. I've gone from having to have my antipsychotic drugs increased every six months to now finally lowering and eliminating medicine. I could not have turned this corner if it wasn't for the information that you, Mark Sis, and Dr. Georgia Ede and many others in the community have provided. Oh, lovely. Fantastic, Kenneth. Way to blaze the trail, too, and explore uh, lifestyle interventions rather than just medical interventions and medication. And of course, this show with this random guy yapping at you is not uh, designed to uh, serve as medical advice nor to counter medical advice. But if you're in the medical system dealing with whatever conditions and medications that you're dealing with, the least you can do for yourself is try to implement a comprehensive lifestyle approach where you're doing everything you can possibly do with your diet, your sleep, your exercise, your sun exposure, so that if nothing else, the meds may work to full effect. And then someday, maybe formulate that dream that you can uh, get off them and avoid the side effects that come with every single medication ever devised. Okay. David Lapp, one of my favorite listeners and uh, commenters, because he writes in with really thoughtful back and forth commentary and is fighting the battle, man. He's doing the extreme healthy living thing while working as a busy attorney over there on the Eastern Seaboard DC area. So, uh, he's talking about sauna. He's a big fan of sauna. He's the one that introduced me to the fabulous company, Almost Heaven Sauna, where they make these portable home use sauna kits. So if you haven't been getting to the gym enough or your gym doesn't have one or you want to use the sauna every day, check those guys out, almostheaven.com. I think uh, you can get a discount if you mention Brad Kearns. Yeah, so 
No excuses, man. Portable home use sauna, one of the greatest investments I've ever made. It's fabulous sitting there ready for use at any time. And of course, the amazing hormetic benefits of getting your body temperature elevated and sweating like crazy now and then. Wonderful detox effect. You make these uh, heat shock proteins in response to the heat stress. And these have all kinds of wonderful antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti-aging properties uh, on the con that when you return your body to homeostasis, right, you elevate your body temperature, you're sweating like crazy, then you get out. If you stay in there too long, it's no good, right? You're going to get sick, you're going to die, whatever. No, the Almost Heaven sauna shuts off automatically after an hour. Kind of a pain, you have to get up and turn it on again, but I think there's a safety matter there, isn't there? Anyway, so uh, David's been saying that uh, by adjusting the positioning of the thermometer, our little home trick, we've been able to jack up that temperature higher. Because as the experts that I've talked to about sauna, you want that thing at maximum heat where you can barely tolerate it. You feel like you're going to, you know, uh, 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 drip away in there, and that's when you get out. That's when the heat shock proteins are released, when you get that profuse sweating going. So it's possible to get this puppy up to 210 if you do a double cycle, like heat it, the timer goes off, heat it up again. Um, so, uh, David's getting in there up at 200, 210, and he's been doing a lot of hot, cold contrast. Uh, can't stay in as long at 210 as he could when it was 170, 180. So, uh, now he's going 30 minutes max at 210 and then getting out for an ice cold water, uh, immersion. I think he got the chest freezer going and then back into the sauna. So question here for you, uh, temperature, uh, enthusiasts. And if you're not a temperature enthusiast and you think this stuff doesn't pertain to you, please consider getting into this right away. It's absolutely life-changing. It's one of the great breakthroughs in health and fitness that we're getting uh, this temperature therapy going and rising into prominence. Guys like Dr. Kelly Starrett and Brian McKenzie blazing the trail, Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese, uh, you can see them on YouTube doing their uh, uh, hot and cold uh, contrast therapy at their training center slash home in Malibu. Uh, so I'm a big enthusiast, as you know, of the chest freezer cold plunge. And so that's what the question pertains to. And hey, the sauna is a little bit of an investment, right? Uh, It's a few grand uh, for a small one, Uh, maybe less actually. There's specials going on you can check out. Uh, But the chest freezer is only, ah, what is it? 400 and something dollars uh, brand new uh, delivered to your home for free by Home Depot. And of course, you can find that stuff on Craigslist if you want to get into the cold game for a very affordable price right there in the comfort of your home, your backyard. Oh, how can you lose? It's great stuff. Uh, read Dr. Rhonda Patrick's uh, detailed scientific report on the benefits of cold therapy or go over to Mark Stanley Apple and there's a great article you type in the search bar, uh, the definitive, uh, the maybe not so definitive guide to cold therapy because there's still so much we don't know about it. so exciting and new. Anyway, David's question. I know Kelly Starrett says avoid cold right after workouts to get the most adaptation from the workout, but any thoughts on sauna immediately post-workout? with cold contrast afterward after you get that good sweat? In other words, can you retain the adaptive benefits of the workout by doing the sauna, then the cold, then the sauna, then the cold? That's what I've been doing and it feels great. Ooh, you you already uh, uh, gave away the answer there, David. If it feels great, oh my gosh, it's got to be great for you, right? David backed again. Uh, It also may be helping produce some incremental but steady increases 
uh, over recent months in my heart rate variability. That could be other things I'm doing, hard to tell. The other day, I did a very intense workout of hard hill running of 20 minutes. I hit the sauna right afterward. I had no soreness the next day and just a little bit tight, which I think is a miracle because I've only recently been running again and expected to get very sore. Maybe the immediate sauna after the hard workout made the difference. Oh my gosh, I feel like I've had the similar experience and same with uh, Dr. Stevie Cobrin coming over and spending some time in my sauna after I believe he had a 15-mile run day and he reported the next day no muscle soreness. So if you're in that uh, post-exercise state where you're a little fatigued and the muscles have been a little damaged, traumatized, and then you go into the sauna and get that sweat going and get that lubrication and looseness, maybe we're on to something. There's probably some data, some research about it. We'll look into this uh, further because it is a pretty fantastic observation to think that you can go do a workout and then go sit in the sauna and enhance the workout benefits. But it makes sense to me when you're releasing those heat shock proteins, obviously to more extreme than you're doing during the workout because you're getting uh, some hormetic benefits of the workout and the elevated body temperature and the elevated respiration. But if you kind of piggyback that up with a sauna, Pretty interesting stuff to try out. And David, if you feel great and you have no soreness the next day, doesn't that count for a lot? I'd say it does. No matter what any scientist says, you've heard me talk about uh, the magnificent experience I've had with cold exposure followed by rewarming via jogging, followed by explosive all-out sprints and feeling uh, complete uh, breakthrough during the sprint workouts because I'm still in that heightened hormonal state from the initial cold exposure, but I have done the work to rewarm my body so I'm not risking injury sprinting on cold joints, muscles, and connective tissue. And go over to YouTube and look for the video, uh, Brad Kern's Unfrozen Caveman Runner, where I describe and uh, show you the process where I'm doing the cold exposure, jogging really slowly to warm up, and then still on this norepinephrine boost, because the norepinephrine boost after brief cold exposure lasts for up to an hour, 200 to 300% increase in that mood-elevating, focusing hormone known as norepinephrine, the motivation hormone. And so then I'm at the track, and I just feel different. I feel fantastic and ready for maximum exertion. So that's a great combo that I've done on the other side, the flip side of cold exposure, and definitely going to get into this idea of sitting in the sauna after a workout. Another element here that comes to mind when we're talking about the importance of building an aerobic base and getting your heart rate into that aerobic training zone is when you're sitting in the sauna, obviously your heart rate is increasing into a training zone. So you might as well be getting a cardiovascular workout just by sitting there in 200 degree weather, okay? No, it's not going to get your quads as developed as actually pedaling a bicycle or running down the street, but you are getting a cardiovascular training session. So if you do, let's say, an hour run, and then you go sit in a sauna for 30 minutes where your heart rate remains elevated uh, into that 180 minus age area as you held during the run, are you getting a 90-minute cardiovascular training effect and keeping your legs loose and supple and more easily to recover? Wow, that's something to think about. I'm not going to give you a definitive scientific answer. We're going to go find it or weigh in if you uh, have an opinion on this, but it seems to make good sense and is worth doing. So... Go get yourself a sauna and a chest freezer cold plunge. What are you waiting for? Uh, Final thoughts from David on another topic. He enjoyed the show with uh, Joel Jameson on the Get Over Yourself podcast. He's the creator of the Morpheus app and a leader in recovery-based workouts. 
David says, the different perspectives on endurance athletics is very interesting. Devaney is so anti-endurance. He says, running is a waste and harmful. Yeah, Art Devaney, classic quote. He says, don't, don't go jogging, it's too dangerous. And he's talking about that steady state stress to the aerobic system where you peg your heart rate up at, obviously, if you're going over the aerobic maximum, then you really are talking about dangerous. And there's a lot of research on this. Uh, Dr. Peter Tia has some choice comments that we put into our new book, Keto for Life, Mark Sisson and I uh, coming out in December, a comprehensive uh, take on the wonderful objective of longevity, living long, living awesome. Uh, He talks about the leaking of mitochondrial DNA into the bloodstream when you elevate body temperature and stress yourself with prolonged workouts too frequently with insufficient rest and recovery. And this mitochondrial DNA is like a foreign agent to the body. So you get an autoimmune response, inflammatory response, it's all bad news. Uh, Another leader, uh, Dr. James O'Keefe, has a very popular TED Talk called Run for Your Life, but not too far and at a slow pace. And he talks in there about the sweet spot for getting that cardiovascular health but not compromising your health in any way through extreme training or excessive uh, chronic cardio. Uh, That's an interesting uh, TED Talk look at that. And he talks about where, you know, a couple few hours a week of cardiovascular exercise is all you really need to maximize your health benefits and minimize your disease risk. And if you exceed that, then you're tiptoeing into this area where chronic exercise can have disastrous health consequences to your hormonal, endocrine, metabolic systems, cardiovascular systems, the calcification of the arteries, uh, the stressful uh, effect on the uh, the very delicate uh, atrial, uh, I think it's the right atrium is the sensitive delicate one and you continue to inflame that uh, through um, uh, medium to high intensity workouts and it gets inflammation and scarring over and over again in the example of let's say, the long-term competitive uh, master cyclist, especially cycling because you can sit your butt on a seat and peg your heart rate up there high for hours and hours a day, unlike a runner or someone in a high-impact sport uh, where uh, the stress of the uh, impact is so much that you can't train for hours a day. But these uh, long-term competitive cyclists are turning up left and right with damaged hearts due to the overly stressful uh, nature of prolonged training in a sport where you're pegging your heart rate up high. The heart's not meant to do that. That's what Devaney's talking about. It's too dangerous to peg your heart up there for a prolonged period of time. We like uh, sort of uh, uh, stochastic uh, nature of exercise where we're sprinting a little bit, we're walking for a couple hours trying to track our game, we're resting the next day, we're lifting magnificent uh, heavy stones and rocks and building shelter the next day, working hard around the clock when uh, things are tough or we're into a traumatic situation and then we have weeks of rest where we're uh, sitting by the stream and staring off into space. That's the life of our ancestors. It wasn't heading to CrossFit four times a week. So there's a lot of factors in the modern training approach that are overly stressful and chronic in nature. If this is new stuff to you, you haven't heard me talk about it before, go over to Mark Stanley Apple and uh, type in the landmark article that had a tremendous impact on the endurance community and has been for many many years. There's a lot of follow-up articles that you can read at the bottom, but it's called A Case Against Cardio, uh, 2006, Mark Sisson, breakthrough article. Changed my life too, because I read that thing and I'm like, oh shit. So what I've been doing 
is no good for my health. I know it was good for my fitness when I was racing for triathlons and trying to make money, but I had to completely recalibrate my sense of what fitness was and broaden my uh, perception of what fitness was and also tone down that penchant for heading out there for hours and hours thinking I was promoting health and longevity when in fact I was compromising it in many ways due to the stressful nature of pegging your heart rate up there. Whew, I know, case against cardio. Good stuff. Thank you for listening. Write in to info at ketoreset.com or info at primalendurance.fit. Based on the nature of your question, we'll answer everything. We'll look at everything. And go look at the courses because we've put all this wonderful information into a very packaged format where you can proceed step by step through the entire content of the wonderful books, Primal Endurance and the Keto Reset Diet. If you're interested in going keto, this is the easiest and most sure way to get all the information and guidance you need over there at ketoreset.com. And then the Primal Endurance Community, the greatest compilation of video expert information and guided tour through the entire Primal Endurance approach that will revolutionize your approach to endurance training. Everything's over there at primalendurance.fit. Ah, it's fun stuff. And remember, just for listening this long, I'm going to give you a top secret 20% discount on your course enrollment. Just type in BRAD20, BRAD20, into the discount field, and you are good to go with that massive discount off your course enrollment. No excuses. Try it out now. Thanks a lot. Brad Kern signing off. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health, and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table? It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder... <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. So, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. Oh yeah, on. she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.